The scripture reading this morning is from John 3:22 to 24. Hear the word of the Lord. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim, because there was, there was much water there. And the people were coming and were being baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Our Heavenly Father, we come this morning to you uh, with a great mix of emotions and uh, thoughts. Lord, our, our minds, as much as we want them to be trained in upon what we are doing here in this moment, when we come to hear the voice of the living God declared from his word. Uh, Lord, we have many other voices from the world drowning out that sense of priority and primacy that ought to hold sway over where our minds go in this moment. Father, our hearts are are heavy and weighted down with many things, um, including just the the sense of knowing that the enemy is active and at work. Um, We're not ignorant of his schemes. And Lord, we know that he comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. And within the church, he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Lord, and we understand that the primary means by which the devil seeks to devour a church is by instigating within its membership attitudes and desires that cause them to devour one another. And God, I pray that you would protect Oak Ridge Community Church from that. We're not ignorant and we're not blind to his ugly hand at work among us. I pray, Father, that you would bring repentance to each heart that needs to be brought to repentance. God, that we would have the heart of our God in the way that we deal with one another, that we would deal with one another tenderly and with love and compassion and grace. God, that we would be bending over backwards to maintain a spirit of unity and the bond of peace in this place. That we would think carefully about what we say to one another, Lord. That we would speak to one another in the fear of the Lord, knowing that we're going to give an account for everything that we say. That we would speak to one another words of grace, that give grace to those who hear and that build up the hearers unto greater maturity in Christ. God, may our actions be done as actions of love that are manifestations of our desire to put one another above ourselves and to consider one another as being more important than ourselves. That is our mindset that is in Christ and it's only to the degree that we live that out that Christ is manifested more fully among us. 
So God, I, I pray against the enemy and I pray against his designs. I pray that you would unite your people with one heart and one mind to labor together for the faith of the gospel and let everything that's secondary and tertiary remain in its proper place. God, I, I ask that you would root the devil from among us and show the victory that Christ has achieved on the cross. May that victory be manifest here in this church body in the relationships that exist here. God, may our union with you in Christ be abundant and clear and vibrant. And may the fruit of that unity with you, Lord, bear itself very fully and majestically in our shared unity with one another in this body. Father, we're going to discuss a topic that within the history of your church has been very emotional. has been an issue of debate and... Uh, as to this point, your church has not come to a, a unified perspective on this. And I, I pray, Lord, that, that what we discuss today would be spoken and heard with, with ears and a, and a mouth of grace, Lord, uh, filled with brotherly affection and patience and long-suffering. Lord, we, we love you, and we want to love you more, and we love one another as difficult as we find it to love each other sometimes, there is still true love in our hearts for one another. And we pray that you would cause that seed of love that your spirit has birthed within us to grow up and become mature in our lives, God. And may your church, uh, may you do good to your church here at Oak Ridge Community this morning. Uh, and may this local church body express more fully the glory of our triune God. And we pray this and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, good morning. Good morning. Uh, if, you can't, if you can't hear it, my heart feels a little heavy this morning. I... Um, I, I uh, And as a, as a result of that, or at least a, a fear of mine, is that that heaviness of heart will come across in the sermon in a way that I do not intend. And so, um, hear me with grace this morning, please, and um, pray for me that my love for you would not be overshadowed by a tone or uh, statement made improperly. Uh, I don't, I don't want that, and I'm laboring against that this morning. So please, please pray. Pray for me. Pray for us. Well, this morning, uh, the, the title of this message is Baptism and Discipleship. And uh, we are coming to those topics as a result of approaching John chapter 3, the end of John chapter 3. Uh, specifically, we're looking today at verses 22 through 24. Um, this, uh, this section begins an important transitional period uh, between the ministries of Jesus and John. And the issue around which this transition takes place is the issue of baptism. Uh, this, this section opens at 322 and it runs down to the beginning of John chapter 4. And what 
encloses this section, what makes that one section of thought is the fact that it opens with Jesus baptizing in verse 22 and it closes with Jesus baptizing at the opening of John chapter 4. And so the, the issue of transition between Jesus and John is really centered around this topic of baptism. Now, today, what I want to do is I want to approach this passage as an opportunity for us to discuss more fully the relationship between baptism and discipleship. Uh, within, embedded within this section, we find an important connection that's being made between baptism and discipleship in Christ. And that reveals to us that for Jesus, believers' baptism is a foundational part of what it means to become his disciple. That's what I'm going to be discussing and presenting today. And uh, we will be using John chapter 3, verses 22 through 24 as our diving board into, that, into those deep waters. Hopefully they won't be troublesome waters that we are entering into. Now, last year I preached two messages on baptism as a means of grace. That was last August, if you would like to go back and listen to those messages. Um, Within those messages, I talked about how baptism functions as a means by which God grants grace to the life of a believer. However, I did not talk, within those messages, I did not talk much about the mechanics of baptism. And what I mean by that is, I didn't address topics like, what is the right way to practice baptism? For example, does being sprinkled with water count as baptism? Does being poured does having water poured over your head count as Christian baptism? Or does baptism only count whenever it's performed by immersion, being fully submerged in water? Or who should be baptized? Is baptism only for professing believers in Jesus Christ? Or is it something that believers ought to be doing to their children? Or thirdly, what is the relationship between the ordinance of baptism and the ordinance of the Lord's table. How do those two things fit together? Many of you have noticed that this year we have been making a point on our Lord's Table Sunday, Sundays to ask those who have not been baptized confessionally, that is, who have not been baptized as believers, we have asked them not to partake in the Lord's Table. Why have we been doing that? These are the kinds of things that I want us to look at together today, and I believe that John chapter 3, verses 22 through 24 provides us with an opportunity to do that. Before we start looking at that, though, I would like to give a couple of clarifications. Um, I do have that slide there, Hans, a couple of clarifications. I do have, I hopefully, hopefully this will help. I'm going to try and do this from now on. I'm going to try to have my outline posted for you guys the points of my outline posted for you guys on the screen so that you can write that down if you want. I want to give a couple of clarifications. The first one I want to give is simply that an acknowledgement that baptism has been a strong point of contention among true believers for centuries. All right? I want to acknowledge that. I want to freely acknowledge that. Uh, there are many, uh, excuse me, I jumped pages. Uh, 
In New England, for example, in the mid-1600s and early 1600s, so we're talking about the colonial period within America, uh, believers' baptism was met with fines, it was met with banishment from communities, and it was even met with public floggings. Uh, Obadiah Holmes would be an example of that. And in fact, it was that issue that led to the establishment of Rhode Island as a colony, and Providence, Rhode Island was the first settlement within that colony, and that was the, the first colony established upon the principle of religious liberty. And guess who established that colony? Persecuted Baptist. So uh, the first Baptist church in America is in Providence, Rhode Island. It is corrupted by a false gospel now, but it's still the building still stands as a monument to God's faithfulness. So in New England, there was persecution in the 1600s. Um, a century earlier, Baptists were strongly persecuted and opposed in the country of Germany. For example, a man named Fritz Erbe, uh, E-R-B-E is the spelling of his last name. Fritz Erbe was a convinced, or excuse me, he was convinced of believer's baptism after reading Luther's German translation of the New Testament. So Luther translated the uh, New Testament into German. Uh, Fritz Erbe was reading that New Testament and became convicted of believer's baptism and from that point forward refused to have his children baptized in the Lutheran church, the state church. As a punishment to that, uh, Erba was arrested by the authorities and he was locked in the south tower of the Wartburg Castle. Now, if you, if you know anything about the Wartburg Castle, you know what was happening in the north tower of the Wartburg Castle 20 years earlier. That was where Martin Luther was actually translating the, the Bible into the common language of German. So just 200 yards away, here you have someone who was convicted of believer's baptism because of Luther's German translation of the Bible, being held and imprisoned within the dungeon because he held to believer's baptism. Every day for seven years, Lutheran ministers would come and seek to convince him of paedo-baptism and cause him to renounce, call him to renounce his position on believer's baptism, and he refused to do it, and ultimately wound up dying in prison for that conviction. In fact, there were tens of thousands of others who were treated that way throughout the time period of the Reformation. I just want to throw that out there. Just a couple decades earlier, in January of 1527, the Swiss reformer Ulrich Zwingli, he oversaw the execution of a man named Felix Mons, M-A-N-Z. Felix Mons was drowned in the river Lamont because he practiced believer's baptism. And as Felix was being bound and thrown into the water, Zwingli said, let him who talks about going under, go under. That's amazing, considering the respect I have for Ulrich Zwingli. Um, they were giving Felix Mons his third baptism, as they would refer to it as. This debate uh, over baptism has been fierce, it's been emotional, and at many times it's been deadly for our Baptist forefathers, at least my Baptist forefathers. Not everyone here is Baptist, and I'm okay with that, but I am a Baptist. This has been a, a fierce, emotional, and at times a deadly debate, and it has been going on in various ways, dating back as far as the Council of Carthage in 414, AD 414, 
where uh, they pronounced an anathema upon anyone who would declare that an infant baptized had not been delivered from eternal perdition and brought into eternal life by that baptism. Or uh, the uh, edict of Honorius in 418, which condemned those who practiced rebaptizing uh, to uh, the penalty of death. Anyone caught doing that would die. So it's been raging for centuries. I know that one sermon is not going to settle this debate that has been going on for at least 16 centuries. Uh, I think it should settle the debate because the scripture is clear on this, but I am not thinking unrealistically. Uh, I don't believe that this issue is actually going to be worked out among the people of God until the day of Christ's glory. Um, however, I do believe that the Bible speaks very clearly to this issue. So my goal today is not to propagate Baptist teaching. As much as I hold to it, as much as I believe that that is biblical, a biblical expression of Christianity. My goal today is not to hold up the Baptist flag among you all and say you all need to be Baptist. My goal today is simply to let the word of God speak to this matter and let the chips fall where they may or by God's grace, let conclusions be reached that are appropriate. One more clarification um, before we get into this. Simply because a person does not agree with believer's baptism does not mean that that person is not a Christian. Okay? I want to be very clear about that. At no point in the sermon today do I intend to argue that because someone does not believe in believer's baptism, they cannot be a Christian? That's not what I'm going to be arguing today. That's not the position of our church. There are many true and godly believers in churches where infant baptism is practiced. I, I was raised in a Missouri Synod Lutheran church, and I knew of very godly saints who prayed for me, unbeknownst to me, prayed for me every day of their lives, at least as far as they knew me. I uh, met one recently, a couple years ago. She's passed on to glory now, but when she found out that I was a pastor, she wound up weeping, or she started weeping in front, just tears sobbing in front of me. And I said, Miss Jenny, what's wrong? Why are you crying? I, I was happy to see her, see her. I didn't know why she was crying to see me. And uh, she said, I am so happy to hear that you're a pastor. I have prayed for you every day of your life. Now, that's, that's amazing, considering the fact that I left that church when I was 15 years old, right? So, and this was when I was 33, I was talking with her. Many Presbyterians like R.C. Sproul and Sinclair Ferguson, they are wonderfully godly men, though I disagree with them on this issue. And so the elders of OCC are not condemning people to hell who disagree with what we see in the scriptures. However, what we are saying is that brothers and sisters who disagree with believers' baptism, number one, do so against the clear testimony of Scripture. And secondly, therefore, are committing a serious error that needs to be reconsidered. That's what we are saying. We're not calling them unbelievers. We are saying that they are doing, practicing infant baptism contrary to the testimony of Scripture and as a serious error that needs to be reconsidered. Now, we hope that today, that the sermon today will help everyone understand why we believe that. But one question that this position raises in connection with the Lord's table is, isn't that exactly what we're saying when we say that those who have not been baptized as confessing believers should not partake of the table? Aren't we saying by that statement that 
fellowship at the table of Christ is not for them, and thereby are we not making a pronouncement upon the state of their soul by not welcoming them to the table? Well, I will be seeking to clarify our position on that today based on what we see in John 3, 22 to 24. All right, so the first thing that I want to notice from this passage in John chapter 3 is that for Jesus, baptism is the first step of discipleship. Baptism is the first step of discipleship. In John chapter 3, verse 22, we find that at this time in Jesus' ministry, it says he began baptizing people. He went out into the region of the lands of Judea, the countryside of Judea, and he began baptizing people. Now, John chapter 4, verse 2 clarifies that it wasn't actually Jesus who was doing the baptizing. It was Jesus' disciples. However, they were functioning and they were operating under Jesus' oversight. So they were doing what Jesus called them to do. So in effect, the disciples' baptizing was, in effect, Jesus' baptizing. It was what he was calling them to do. Now, in John chapter 4, verse 1, we find the reason why Jesus began baptizing. And the reason why Jesus began baptizing was because baptism was a part of what it meant for Jesus to be making disciples. Why was Jesus baptizing? Why did he start baptizing? Because baptism was a fundamental part of what it meant to become one of his disciples. Now, making disciples involved preaching the truth about the kingdom of God to the people and calling upon the people to believe in that truth, believe in the good news of the kingdom of heaven. But baptism was the outward sign that Christ appointed for those who actually believed in his message to come and openly, publicly become his disciples. So making disciples involved the preaching of the gospel, but those who actually began believing in that message, what were they to do? According to Jesus' instructions, they were to come submit themselves to him in the waters of baptism as a sign of their faith in his gospel. And this is the pattern that shows, this, this pattern shows us in John chapter 3 and John 4, what this shows us is that according to Jesus, baptism was not an optional part of being his disciple. It was a necessary part of becoming his disciple. It was the first outward step of discipleship. Now, Jesus actually teaches this very plainly in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, where he says to his disciples, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Now, implied in this instruction, this final commission that Jesus places upon his church, implied within this commission is the fact that the church was called to go forth with the message of the gospel and preach it to the nations. We are, we are, uh, how are they going to believe in him they've not heard? And how are they going to hear without a preacher, right? That's Romans chapter 10. That is implied within this commission here in Matthew 28. But when the church goes forth preaching that message and seeks to make disciples, when someone hears and believes in the gospel and wants to respond to that gospel by becoming a disciple of King Jesus, what is that person supposed to do? 
Notice that the first thing Jesus tells that person to do is not to go join a Bible study and learn more about Christianity. As important as that is. The first thing Jesus calls that person to do is not to come sit under the teaching ministry of the church so that they might learn more about the scriptures. That is very important. That is part of what he calls us to do in making disciples, but that's not the first step in making disciples. According to Jesus, the first step in becoming his disciple is willfully and consciously submitting to him in the waters of baptism. You know, that can sound a little shocking to our ears because we have been conditioned by a trite and shallow form of religion known as modern-day evangelicalism. For most people, even in churches, for most people, baptism is no more important than things like church discipline or church membership. They believe it's something that can be set aside and still a faithful Christian life can be lived out. Most professing Christians in our country today think that they can live a faithful life of discipleship in Christ without ever submitting to Christ in baptism. But clearly, that is not what Jesus teaches here in Matthew 28. In fact, according to Matthew 28, it is impossible to begin a life of discipleship without being baptized. That is strengthened by the fact that nowhere in the scriptures do we ever find Christ or his apostles recognizing any unbaptized person as a true disciple. Now there is one possible exception to that. You know the thief on the cross. right? He was welcomed into paradise with Christ and he was not baptized. Well... I think we can all agree that that is an exception. That's not the rule, right? Uh, no one was going to pull him down off the cross so that he could go get baptized and then put him back on the cross so that he could die. Right? It's just not how that was going to happen. And within the normal process of living the Christian life, that is not going to be the scenario that 99.9999% of people who become disciples of Christ are going to face. So that, cannot, that exception cannot be the rule that has to stay an exception. What Jesus teaches in Matthew 28 and what we see Jesus practicing in John 3.22 and John 4.1 is that baptism was the first step required for someone to become his disciple. Now, why is that? Why is baptism so important? Why is that the first step in becoming a disciple? Well, there are many things that could be said to that. Let me offer three to you very, very briefly. Three reasons why baptism is the, that first step. Number one, because baptism is the outward sign and proof of our faith and repentance. Baptism is, according to the scriptures, the outward sign of and proof of our faith and repentance. Acts 2.38, where Peter commanded the Jews of his day to repent and to receive Jesus Christ as Lord, as Messiah. When they were pierced to their heart and were wondering, what should we do, brothers? Peter commanded them that if they wanted to be saved from their sin, they had to repent, and each one of them needed to prove that repentance. They needed to demonstrate that repentance by being baptized in the name of the one just weeks ago they had rejected. Be baptized in the name of Christ, and you will receive the forgiveness of sins. Baptism functions for us 
today in the same way. If, if we truly believe in Jesus and desire to come to Jesus Christ to receive the forgiveness of sins and cleansing, then the command of Christ through his apostles is for us to demonstrate that desire through repenting of our sin and submitting to Christ as Savior and Lord in baptism. So turning away from sin, submitting to Christ in baptism. So baptism is the first step in discipleship because baptism is the outward sign of, and proof of our faith and repentance. Secondly, it's not only a proof of our repentance and faith, but it's also an act of clothing ourselves with Christ. It's my favorite, this is my favorite verse on baptism, Galatians 3.27, where Paul writes, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that wonderful? That is what is going on when someone is submitting to baptism. They are taking up all the promises of, of Christ. Everything that Christ has promised to be for those who will believe in him, they are taking all of that upon themselves and they are wrapping Christ around them as if, as if a robe, just hiding themselves within Jesus Christ when they submit to him in the waters of baptism. That is what baptism is picturing. It's symbolic of an act of faith that is taking hold of Christ and wrapping him around us and hiding ourselves within him. Therefore, baptism must be the first step of discipleship. That is, that is the outward expression of closing with Christ and submitting to him. And then number three, the reason why baptism is the first step of discipleship is because it is God's appointed means of calling upon him for salvation. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. Corresponding to that, Peter writes, Baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a clean conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, notice what it says there. How does Peter define baptism? He does not define baptism as the washing away of dirt from the flesh. Baptism is actually defined as a conscious, wholehearted appeal unto God for salvation. It is, it is brought forth out of a faith in the resurrected Jesus Christ. A faith that Jesus, the Lamb of God, was slain to take away my sins. And Jesus was risen again in victory as my Savior and my Lord. And I want to be saved in Him. I want my sins gone. I want my conscience cleansed before the Lord. I want to be presented before Him spotless and without blemish on the day of Christ's glory. I don't want to stand before Him naked. I want to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. I want to stand with the Lamb of God slain for the, from the foundation of the world. Well, well, how am I going to express all of those desires? If that's truly in my heart, what am I supposed to do with those desires? God tells us, submit to baptism. Submit to baptism. See, it's not complicated. The, the scripture's teaching on baptism is not difficult to understand. But we have traditions. Even as Baptists, we have traditions that get in the way of understanding what baptism truly is about. So baptism must be the first step in discipleship because that is God's appointed means of calling upon him in the name of Christ for salvation. Now, if anyone in here has ever belonged to a Southern Baptist church, especially down south, you know how the altar call is used and the sinner's prayer is held up as the means of calling upon God for salvation. That is not biblical. 
That is not biblical. The, the process, the procedure, the policy that's set down for us in Scripture is to have faith in the heart that believes that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God has raised him from the dead, and then professing that faith back to God in the waters of baptism. That's the biblical model. Not praying the sinner's prayer, but being baptized in the, in the name of the triune God. So that's why Jesus himself made baptism a central part of what it means to become his disciple. And I, I know that this flies in the face of modern day teaching on this. But according to the New Testament, apart from being baptized in Christ's name, a person has not yet officially become his disciple. Second thing we see in John 3, 22 to 24 about baptism and Jesus' view of baptism Notice, secondly, that for Jesus, baptism was intended for believers only. Where do we see that? Well, in verse 23, we see that Jesus and John were both baptizing in Anon near Salim, or at least they were around one another in that same region. And it says that they were baptizing those who were coming to them. So though, and the people were coming and were being baptized, verse 23. Now, baptism, in, especially you can see this very clearly in Greek, these two different tenses between coming and being baptized. Being baptized is passive. It's something that was happening to these people. Jesus and John were baptizing the people. But they were only baptizing those people who were willingly coming to them in order to receive baptism. See, the, the coming here, it's in the middle tense. It's something that these people were doing of their own will. It was something they were doing on their, of their own volition. They were coming to Jesus. They were coming to John. They heard the message that they were proclaiming, and the people in response to that message, if they believed in it, they would come and submit themselves under that teaching by being baptized by the teachers. So for Jesus, in other words, the baptism that Jesus practiced was what we would call today believer's baptism, or what I like to call confessional baptism. This is the pattern that we see in the rest of the New Testament. When John appeared, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Matthew chapter 3, verses 5 through 6 says... That in response to that preaching, at that point, Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan. And they were being baptized by John in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. Now, notice that this baptism was a confessional baptism what is called believer's baptism. And in fact, what we find in the next two verses, in verses 7 and 8, is that John would not allow anyone to be baptized who did not come confessing their sins and demonstrating in their lives fruits of repentance. Remember when the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to him for baptism, John stopped and rebuked them and said, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? 
but bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That was John's charge to them. It was not, sure, you want to be baptized? Come on, I'm baptizing everybody. No, that's not, that is not how John's baptism functioned. John's baptism functioned as an outward means of expressing an internal conviction. That a person had been brought to the point where they were convicted over their sins. They knew that they were not in a right relationship with God. And they came for baptism, confessing that wrong on their part. And coming to baptism in faith, believing in God's promise of forgiveness. It was confessional baptism from John the Baptist. Now, when Jesus takes up that mode of baptism in John chapter 3, there's not a hint that he changes that tone or that purpose behind baptism. He takes up the very same baptism that John was administering, and he begins administering it to his disciples. So John would not let people be baptized apart from confessing their sins and faith and the message he was preaching. When Jesus takes up that same baptism in John 3.21, there's no distinction whatsoever that he operated any differently than John the Baptist. We see the same pattern practiced throughout the rest of the New Testament, and I'll just try to run through these quickly. In Acts chapter 2, verse 41, on that day of Pentecost, when Peter commanded the, the unbelieving Jews to repent of their unbelief and to submit themselves to Christ in baptism, Acts 2:38, it says in verse 41 that it was only those who received Peter's word who were then baptized. So there's this conscious, wholehearted reception of the message Peter was preaching prior to being submitted for baptism, submitting themselves. In Acts chapter 8, verse 12, we find the same thing with Philip. When Philip was preaching the gospel of Christ in Samaria, it says that when the people believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Christ, then they were being baptized, men and women alike. So what's the order there? Which comes first, faith or baptism? Faith. Faith comes first. Baptism is an outward expression of that faith. Right? Acts chapter 16, verses 31 through 34. This is one of my favorites. The Philippian jailer. Right? When he asked Paul, uh, what must I do to be saved? Then Paul and his companion responded saying, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. So there we find the primacy, the, the, the primacy of faith, right? Faith is absolutely necessary. That is the first internal response to the gospel unto salvation. But then they spoke the word of the Lord to this Philippian jailer together with all who were in his house. That's verse 32. And in verse 33 the Philippian jailer took Paul and his companion that very hour of the night and he washed their wounds. He was manifesting repentance towards them. And immediately it says, he was baptized, he and all his household. In verse 34, and he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having, been having believed in God with his whole household. Now, many try to say that this is an example of infant baptism because it talks about the jailer's whole household being baptized. But if you notice, actually, these verses explicitly say that everyone in the jailer's household was baptized because everyone in that household was believing. Faith came first, right? 
And then they submitted in baptism as an expression of that faith. And why this is why this is worded this way as the jailer and his whole household is because that was so rare during that time. Remember, Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace, but I came to bring a sword, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. The gospel divides families. You understand that, right? And when you are holding true to the gospel and you are preaching the reality of Christ as king, that is going to be a sword that will divide your families. As painful as that is. What was so remarkable about the Philippian jailer was that his entire household came to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There was not that division that took place in that household. That was remarkable and it was noteworthy, which is why it's contained that way in the scriptures. You find the same thing in Acts chapter 18, verse 8 with Crispus, where it says, Crispus, a leader of the synagogue, Believed in the Lord with all his household. Wow. All of his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and what? Being baptized. They were believing and then they were being baptized. There's a clear order in this verse. There's the hearing of the message of the gospel. There's believing in that message of the gospel. And then there's being baptized as an outward expression of faith in that gospel. So the testimony of Scripture could not be clearer on this. Nowhere in Scripture do we have anyone being baptized apart from a confession of faith. Even if that confession of faith winds up being wrong, even if it's not genuine, right? I mean, this is Simon Magus in Acts chapter 8, right? Simon Magus? Baptized by Philip, but his profession of faith was, was not genuine, But he still came to baptism with a profession of faith. And so for Jesus and his apostles, the means by which someone becomes a disciple is through confessional baptism. It was baptism for those who were confessing their sins, those who were confessing their faith in the gospel, and those who were confessing their desire to be Christ's disciple. And within the historical discussion of baptism then, that means that infant baptism cannot be called baptism. Now, 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 I know, uh, I know this is true. I know it's true. But this is a very touchy topic for many of us, right? And we're not trying to speak with anger here. We're just trying to speak about what's true. It's not vindictiveness. It's an, and I'm not accusing anyone either. I, I like your amens. You guys know that. It encourages me to keep going. But... Enough said. It was baptism for those who were confessing, and that means that if confession is at the heart of true baptism in the Scriptures, then infant baptism cannot be counted as baptism. Why is that? Well, because infants cannot come to baptism as a confession or as an expression of their faith. John baptized those who were coming to him. That means they were operating according to the, the, the capacity of their own wills to come submit themselves to the message he preached. Jesus baptized those who were coming to him, not those who were being brought to him. You know, I was, when I was a baby, 
I was baptized in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Um, I am so thankful for my upbringing in the Missouri Synod Church. Uh, they did a remarkable job of, and I've told you this before, they, they did a remarkable job of teaching me the gospel. I didn't believe in the gospel, but they taught me the gospel. And so when I was saved, it all made sense. It clicked, right? Now, I was baptized in the Lutheran church according to Lutheran principles, according to Lutheran doctrine and belief about baptism. My parents brought me to be baptized, and my grandparents came alongside with them, right? They brought me to the baptismal font out of their desire for me to be a Christian. But what was missing when they brought me to baptism? My confession of faith was missing, wasn't it? My desire to be a follower of Christ was missing. My confession of Jesus Christ as Lord and of his death on the cross as my hope was entirely absent. I had no idea what was happening to me when my pastor and my parents and grandparents brought me to be sprinkled with water. Now, that means that whatever happened to me on that day, it cannot be called baptism. Because fundamental to baptism is confession, according to the scriptures. And so even if someone has been baptized in a Baptist church, or even if someone has been immersed in baptism, if their confession of faith was not part of that baptism, then it cannot be called baptism. You understand that? That's why even Baptists who were uh, wrongly baptized as young children and actually come to saving faith later on in their 20s or 30s or 40s, that's why they are baptized over because the initial baptism was not a true baptism. It was not an expression of true, genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It was a ritual. It was an act. It was something they were doing because of peer pressure or parental pressure or just what they thought was the right thing to do. That's not baptism. Baptism is a profession of faith in Christ. And apart from that, it cannot be called baptism. So, baptism is the first step in becoming a disciple of Christ, and it must be the expression of a person who is confessing faith in Christ, or else it is not baptism. So thirdly, notice this. Not only did Jesus hold baptism to be the first step, not only did he only baptize believers, but then thirdly, Jesus practiced baptism by immersion. You see this in John chapter uh, 3.23, where it says that John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim because there was much water there. Now the implication of this verse is obvious. Why was John baptizing in that specific place? Why would John's and Jesus' form of baptism require that it happen in a place where there was a lot of water? Because for them, in order for baptism to truly take place, it had to be by immersion. John Calvin himself, I was shocked to read this, but uh, John Calvin himself, who regularly baptized infants and taught others to baptize infants, even he admitted in his commentary on this passage that from these words we may infer that John and Christ administered baptism by plunging the whole body beneath the water. He says the same thing in volume 18 um, 
It's like page 360 or something. It's, it's concerning um, Acts chapter 8 in the Ethiopian eunuch. He acknowledges that same thing. So it's very clear that the scriptural pattern is that Jesus practiced baptism by immersion. Now that may be the case, but does that mean that you have to be immersed in order to be truly baptized? That's another question that came to my mind. If they practice baptism by immersion, and that's how they understood baptism, do you have to be immersed in order to be truly baptized? Can a sprinkling or a pouring actually count as true baptism according to the scriptures? Well, I believe that immersion is necessary for true baptism, and I will give you a few reasons why. Number one, Immersion is necessary because that is what the word baptizo actually means. There are many people today who say that uh, baptism in the New Testament can mean dipping or it can mean sprinkling or pouring, but that is simply not true. There is a specific word in Greek for sprinkling, and that word is hrantizo. And there is a specific word in Greek for pouring, and that word is ekheo. The word baptizo has one primary meaning in the scripture, and that means to dunk or to submerge something in water. It means that exclusively. You know, one of the reasons I love history is because it makes sense of the present. Amen? You read history and you can make sense of where we are in the present. Well, some of you are probably familiar with the Greek Orthodox Church, right? Greek Orthodoxy is the modern descent of the segment of the church that was in the eastern part of the Roman Empire, okay? Now, this was the part of the church that primarily spoke Greek instead of Latin. So in the early days of the church, early centuries of the church, there was this division that took place between east and west. And the primary divider was the language that was spoken within those churches. In the West, they primarily spoke Latin. In the East, they primarily spoke Greek. And so it became the, the East and the West church. Now, to be clear, the Greek Orthodox Church does still practice infant baptism. But what's interesting to me is that even to this day, when, when a Greek Orthodox minister or a priest baptizes a baby... He does so by fully immersing that baby underwater three times. Now, why would they do that? Why would they do that to infants? Why is that how they would baptize babies? Well, because historically, the Greek Orthodox Church spoke what? Greek. And because they spoke Greek historically, they know what that Greek word baptizo actually means. And it means to submerge or to immerse entirely in water. And so I feel bad for the babies, right? <laughs> Imagine, I mean, if a baby could actually have a conscious thought in that moment, right? Like be it, have an aware, a thought of awareness. Like, what is this guy doing to me? Uh, they dunk him underwater sideways, sideways, and then right down. And, um, so I just bring that up as an illustration, an example to, to show that this word baptizo actually means to be immersed underwater. And uh, even the Greek Orthodox Church today testifies to that. Now, a second reason why immersion is necessary for true baptism is because that is the clear pattern that is presented to us in the scriptures. 
Right, so for example, in Acts chapter 8, verses 36 through 38, you have the, the example of the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip. Now, Philip had been called by the Spirit to go up to this man who was reading Isaiah 53, and he didn't, this Ethiopian eunuch could not make sense of what it was talking about. And so the Spirit brought Philip up to him, and Philip began sharing with him the truth about Jesus Christ. And it says, as he shared, it says in verse 36, as they went along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? Now, you know, it's just a parenthesis here. Obviously, this was a substantial amount of water, right? It wasn't just a little puddle on the side of the road. Uh, I'll get to that in a second. He says, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. Listen to that condition for baptism. It's a prerequisite to be baptized. What prevents me from being baptized? Faith. Do you believe? The Ethiopian eunuch replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. There's confessionalism right there. right? And then it says that he ordered the chariot to stop, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. Now, this is a very instructive passage, as I just pointed out. It not only makes clear that faith in Christ is a necessary prerequisite to being baptized in Christ's name. you got to believe in your heart with all your heart. But then secondly, this passage also indicates that the early church practiced baptism by immersion. And we see that clearly here. In order to baptize the eunuch, what did it say they did? They both went where? Alongside the water, right? They both knelt down at the puddle. No, it says they both went down into the water. Philip and the eunuch. That, that repetitious phrase there, it's there for emphasis. It's to say that both of them went into this water, which means there was enough water for both of them to fit. Right, And that's where Philip baptized him. So if the early church practiced baptism by sprinkling, then why was it necessary for Philip and the eunuch to go down into the water? In fact, why did they even have to stop at this watering hole for baptism if baptism was by sprinkling? Think about it. Where is the eunuch traveling right now? He's traveling from Jerusalem back to Ethiopia. What do you have to cross in order to go from Jerusalem to Ethiopia, you got to cross a pretty large desert. Okay? Now, if you're going to take a trip like that across a desert, what are you going to make sure that you pack with you as you make that trip? You're going to make sure you've got enough water in your, in your caravan being toted along with you to get you all the way across the desert, because that's the only thing that's going to keep you alive in that heat, right? So, if the early church practiced baptism by sprinkling, then why didn't Philip just crack open a bottle of water, throw it on the Ethiopian eunuch, and call it baptism? Well, because according to the pattern passed down to the church by Christ himself, that would not have counted as baptism. Baptism required not only faith in the heart, but it also required enough water to submerge the full body of the person being baptized in that water. Now, why is submersion necessary? 
Well, that's because of what baptism pictures. Baptism pictures salvation and union with Christ. And according to Romans chapter 6, verses 4 to 5, when the Holy Spirit brings us to salvation, it says He causes us to be buried with Christ through baptism into His death. And then He brings us up spiritually to walk in newness of life. And verse 5 clarifies what that's talking about. The work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer is the work of creating union between the believer and Christ, the, the sinner and Christ, bringing that sinner into union with Christ's death and bringing that sinner into union with Christ's resurrection life. Right? So that's, that's where we find this proof of being a Christian. Are you bearing the fruits of a person who has been raised up to new life in Christ? Are, have you died to your sin? Are your passions and desires and motivations to run in the way of sin, are they being crucified in you? Have they been definitively put to death in you by union with Christ? And then, are you being empowered by the Holy Spirit to walk in newness of life in the name of Christ? Are you empowered by the Spirit to put your sin to death? Are you empowered by the Spirit to walk in fellowship? with God? Are you empowered by the Holy Spirit to keep in step with Him and to bear the fruits of the Spirit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control? Are you filled with love for one another within the church? Does the Holy Spirit cause the love of God to be birthed in your heart so that you would rather love your brother and be wronged rather than do wrong back to Him? Does that kind of fruit manifest in you? then you have been brought into union with Christ, right? Baptism is supposed to be an expression, an outward demonstration of that full union with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. Here's my question. Can sprinkling or pouring someone on the head with water, can sprinkling or pouring represent full union with Christ? No, it cannot. Even pouring, if, if I had water poured over my head, that's only, that's only symbolizing that my head has been united with Christ under the water and brought to a new life. No, immersion is, is necessary. When we are baptized, we are testifying outwardly that we have experienced this union with Christ inwardly. That we have died to sin and the world and the flesh with Christ and that the Spirit has brought us to new spiritual life in Him. And the only form of baptism that actually pictures going down into the grave with Christ and being raised up to walk in newness of life with Him is confessional baptism by immersion. So that's the second reason why immersion is necessary. A third reason why immersion is necessary and the ultimate reason is that there is no other way for us to submit to baptism as Christ understood baptism without submitting to baptism by immersion. When Christ spoke about baptism, what he had in mind was not sprinkling. What he had in mind was not pouring. What he had in mind was immersion. And so if we would obey Christ's command to be baptized, then we need to obey that command according to Christ's understanding of what baptism is. Amen? Now, let me close with a concluding application. I actually had three here. And I'm only going to focus mainly on one. Let me give you the two in summary. First application is if there's someone in this room who claims to follow Christ, 
but has not been baptized yet, Christ calls you and commands you to come and be baptized. It's not an option. It's not something you can take or leave. You know, I'll have a little bit of the Bible, I'll have a little bit of fellowship in the church, but I'm not going to have fellowship with Christ in baptism. That's, that's not an option. You cannot call yourself a disciple of Christ according to the scriptures, not according to Pastor Seth. According to the scriptures, you cannot call yourself a disciple of Christ apart from taking the first step of discipleship, which is baptism. Number two, for those believers who have been baptized, let me encourage you to make full use of your baptism. How many in here have been baptized? I don't want to put you on the spot. Maybe just keep your hands down. Keep your hands down. Keep your hands down. Because not everyone has. In your heart, if you have been baptized in Christ, when was the last time you thought about your baptism? When was the last time you sat down and contemplated what actually happened when you were baptized in the name of Christ? You know, the Westminster... uh, Catechism, Fuller Catechism, has a whole section, it's like this long on the page, about using your baptism. I can email that out to anyone who may want to look at that. But your baptism was not something that was insignificant in your life. And you need to recognize that. Jesus and God, God the Father, they do not intend for baptism to just be a blip in your Christian experience that you move on from as you continue to live the Christian life. Baptism was where you covenanted with God to receive salvation upon the terms He has presented in Christ. Baptism is where the Holy Spirit led you to give yourself wholly and fully unto the Lord in the name of Jesus. Baptism is where you expressed fully your union with Christ. And what that demands of you is that from the, for the rest of your life, you live with a conscious understanding that you are living in covenant with God in the name of Jesus. That God has made covenant promises to us in Jesus Christ for full salvation. He's, he's bearing the full weight of it. And we have made a covenant promise to God in Christ to receive salvation in no other way. So every day we go forward. How do we use our baptism? Well, we use our baptism by reminding ourselves moment by moment that our acceptance with God is not based upon our performance. It's not based upon what we can do for God or any decision that we've made. Our salvation with God was fully secured for us in this Son, in the death of Jesus Christ, in the righteous life of Jesus Christ, in the resurrection life of Jesus Christ, in His ascended life where He's interceding for us at the right hand of the Father right now in His second coming glory when He comes to receive the church fully unto himself. That's our hope of salvation before the Father. It's not what we've done. And so every single day we have to be preaching this truth to ourselves. I am in covenant with God. And the terms of that covenant are very simple. Jesus does everything. I I receive everything from Jesus. That's it. And so when you submitted to baptism, you signed that that contract with God. You said, I will receive you on these terms. And God the Father spoke to you and said, I will receive you on these terms. That's where you testified to your full union with Christ. And so, how do you use your baptism? 
Well, every day of your life, every moment of your life, you ought to be consciously thinking about how you can express the fullness of that union with Christ in the way you live. Is the fullness of Christ's death being put on display in your life in accordance with the demands of your baptism? in accordance with what you proclaimed in your baptism? Is your life living up to the fullness of being united in death with Christ? Or are you playing around with sins of death? Are you refusing to cut off that hand and pluck out that eye? You're called to a higher, you're called to a higher life than that, believer. You're called to walk holier than that, aren't you? To worship the Lord in holy attire? Your baptism is a testament to the fact that you have, you have declared in those waters, and the rest of the church is going to hold you accountable to this. You've declared in those waters that you truly have died to your sin in Christ. The rest of the church is supposed to keep an eye on you and make sure that that confession is being lived up to. So how do you use your baptism? Well, you, Are you exuding fullness of your union uh, uh, with, with Christ in death throughout your life? Are you, are you exemplifying the fullness of resurrection life? in your daily living? Are you living with Christ in a newness of life or do you look just like everyone else in the world? And I'm not only talking about the outward sins, right? I'm not talking about just the pornography and the drinking and, 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 and the being abusive emotionally, physically with your spouses or, or living at enmity with your brothers or sisters or your wife or your children or husband or, 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 or being rude and all that stuff. On the, those are the easy things to identify. I'm talking about the real, the, the real expressions of a life with Christ as walking in full fellowship with God. Are you grumbling and complaining and bemoaning life in this world the same way everyone else in the world is? Well, guess what? You're not expressing fullness of resurrection life with Christ in that moment. You need to repent. You need to turn away from that grumbling and that griping and that complaining. You need to show people the fullness of joy that comes from living a life with Christ in God. I could keep going, but... That's how, we, that's how we use our baptism. And believer, you need to be using your baptism. If you, have been, if you have confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and you've submitted to him in the waters of baptism, that needs to stay with you every day of the rest of your life. I have committed myself to the Lord in light of the fact that he fully committed himself to me. And i got to live up to that. But here's, here's, here's where I want to camp for a minute. I'm going to try and be brief here. A third point of application, and let me, let me close on this point. I want to point out the connection between worshiping Christ in baptism and worshiping Christ at his table. As I mentioned earlier, the elders have been encouraging those who have not yet uh, presented themselves for confessional baptism. Uh, we have asked those who have not done that to abstain from fellowshipping at the table. The reason for that is because we do not believe that fellowshipping with with Christ at the table is for them yet because they have not fellowshipped with Christ in baptism yet. And throughout the New Testament, there is an order to these things. You never find in the New Testament someone being permitted to come to the Lord's table who has not already come to the Lord in baptism. It's It's like church membership. You guys understand that that no one in the early church would have counted a person as a Christian who had not yet been baptized as an expression of their faith. 
They, they would not have let that person into the fellowship of the church if they had not yet publicly identified with Christ in baptism. If you don't have faith to do that, then why do you think you have faith to join us? That doesn't mean they wouldn't let them in the door. It doesn't mean they wouldn't let them in the service. It just means they would not welcome them into the official membership of the church. Membership is a real thing, by the way. Those who are not members, membership in a local church is a real thing. It's biblical. It's in the scriptures. I'll talk to you about that more clearly later if you want. They would not, they, the early church would not have welcomed anyone who was not baptized into their official membership. Much less would they have welcomed anyone to the Lord's table apart from identifying with Christ in baptism. In fact, if you read in the early centuries of the church, they wouldn't even let unbaptized people stay in the room when the church celebrated in fellowship with the Lord at his table. I'm not saying that we should adopt that. <laughs> I'm just saying that that's how, they viewed, that's how they viewed the importance of baptism. In John chapter 3, 22, and John chapter 4, verse 1, and throughout the rest of the New Testament, a person could not, or excuse me, a person could be, or, oh, man, before a person could be pronounced and accepted as a disciple of Jesus Christ, he or she had to submit to Christ and believers' baptism. And, um, you know, I think it's important to point out that as it relates to the table, every single Protestant and Reformed denomination requires baptism before they will let you come participate at the Lord's table. It's a different form of baptism, but you try going to a Reformed Presbyterian church or to a Missouri Synod Lutheran church as one who has not been baptized according to Lutheran doctrine or Presbyterian doctrine, try going to that church and try to participate in communion with them. They won't let you. Why is that? Because you haven't been baptized according to them yet. So, <clears throat> regardless of your desire, your profession of faith in Christ, if, if you've not been baptized yet, then the first step in fellowship with Christ, the next step, I will say, in fellowship with Christ is not coming to fellowship with him at the table. It's coming to fellowship with him in baptism. And then you can move to fellowship with Christ at the table. What's pictured here is covenant establishment and covenant renewal. It's like marriage, right? When you get married, you are establishing a covenant with another person called marriage. Covenant renewal is, is celebrated in the act of marriage, okay? Speak that way. You guys understand what I'm saying. Intimacy within marriage. That is covenant renewal. That's renewing the covenant that you made with one another on the day you were married. Right? Same way with baptism and the Lord's Supper. Covenant establishment in baptism. Covenant renewal at the Lord's table. You're coming back to the table and you're, you're proclaiming your hope all over again that what you did in your baptism was genuine and true and you're still holding fast to hope in the Lord Jesus Christ and waiting for him to come. So now the question is, as, as, as I come to a close here, please thank you for your patience, all right? The question is, what if there's someone who is a true believer who was baptized as an infant in a different church should that person be permitted to partake in communion at the Lord's table? Well, based on what we have seen in the scripture, our answer at Oak Ridge would have to be no. Because what took place in that person was, as an infant, was not baptism. It was a sprinkling, it was a pouring, but it was done according to the will and the desire of someone else. It was not done according to the will and desire of that person. Now, if a person has been baptized with sprinkling, 
but that sprinkling was an act of, of their confession of faith in Christ? Are we prepared to welcome that person to the table in fellowship? I'm much, I'm much more ready to do that because though I disagree with the form of baptism, at least it was done as an act of faith in Christ Jesus. Right? So in that, in that sense, it's still categorized as confessional baptism. And that's what's important. Okay. But what if someone understands that this is the conviction of the church but disagrees with that conviction and wants to partake in communion with us anyway. What do we do? Are we going to bar that person from joining with us at the table? Or are we going to forcibly restrain him or her from doing so and kick them out of the building? No. (laughs) No, an emphatic no. (laughs) I love you, man. No, we will not do that. In fact, I would say that we would actually permit that person to continue receiving communion, understanding that they are doing so contrary to the instruction of the church, contrary to what we believe to be what the teaching of Scripture gives us, and, and we believe in an unworthy manner, which Rome, 1 Corinthians 11 has a strong warning for those who participate in the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. We believe that our authority as elders in the church extends only to the point of explaining who the table of fellowship is for and urging any people who are not biblically baptized to abstain from participating until they have submitted to Christ in baptism. That is the extent of our authority in guarding the table, if you will. If someone understands that that is our position on this matter and still wants to partake of the table, we believe that that is a matter between that person's conscience and the Lord, and we will respect that. However, as I mentioned, it needs to be understood clearly that we believe that person is partaking with Christ's people in an unworthy manner since he or she has not yet been baptized according to the Scriptures. So baptism and discipleship. For Jesus, they were absolutely connected. They could not be separated. May the Lord add his blessing to the message in your own hearts and apply it in whatever way you need it applied. Father, I pray that you would be with us, Lord, that you would uh, cause your word to minister to our hearts in the right ways. God, I, I, I do ask that even with varying opinions that are uh, rampant with, within the church in this country and around the world, I, I pray that the spirit of unity and the bond of peace would not be broken. Or we may hold to these convictions and, and view things differently from other people. That does not mean that we can write another believer off simply because they do not agree with us. Lord, give us grace and love. Give us humility and long-suffering and patience and peace with one another. As we look to you, Lord, we trust that you will provide all that we need for life and for godliness. Lord, we ask and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Love you all. So thankful for each and every one of you. Um, If you would like to talk with me or one of the elders about the message, um, if you have questions about baptism, if you haven't been baptized and you want to talk through that, please come up and talk with us. If you want to read a helpful resource that will not strain your brain, uh, this is a very good booklet. It's called Going Under by Jim Eliff. 
If you go, uh, if you Google it, you can find that they're actually giving it away for free. You just have to pay for shipping. We're going to get a bunch of copies of this in to the church uh, for free uh, for anyone to take if they want. This is a great resource. So please, please uh, go to that if you need to. All right. Now for the benediction from Mark, chapter 16, verses 15 and 16. And Jesus said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. You go in the fullness of hope that you are among those who are saved. Uh, And those of you who have not yet believed and been baptized, come and let's talk about that. Father, please be with us, we pray. Dwell with us. Let your spirit lead us in a good way forward this week. And may we live out the fullness of our union with your beloved son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.